0: This is The Ethicist, a new podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, a novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce those co-hosts. Jack Schaefer is a media writer for Politico. Welcome, Jack. Greetings. And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU. Hi, Kenji. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about ethical conundrums of all kinds, great and small, including where you park and the death penalty.
1: That's quite a range, Amy.
2: Not not really. I killed a man in Reno once um, (laughs) just to watch him die after he stole my parking place. (laughs) And
0: we'll debate a classical ethical dilemma. But first, we're going to look into the ethicist email inbox to see what common themes or questions readers have sent us this week. Our very first question is about the occasional penny, nickel, or dime you get in the mail from charities you may never have heard from.
2: Many charities to which I have never contributed and have no interest in supporting send appeals in the mail containing a nickel, a quarter, or even the rare half dollar. Is it ethical for me to keep and spend this change, or am I obligated to spend 49 cents on the postage to send it back? or else to throw it in the trash.
0: Signed, name withheld. Kenji, what were your thoughts about this?
1: Well, again, I think this is a professional defamation that I keep starting with the law, and I promise I will never end with the law, but I start with the legal contract principle that says you can't make another person your debtor without that person's consent. So here I feel like this is very unethical behavior on the solicitor's part saying, you know, we are going to guilt trip you into giving to our charity. And so I feel like the person should be able to do whatever they want with the money. You don't need to consent to that behavior.
2: Kenji, is is the unethical thing here the money or the guilt tripping? Because most charities, you know, send you the pictures of deformed children or, you know, sad face leukemia uh, victims. What exactly is unethical? Uh, Money or what?
1: It could be that they're both. But, you know, Answering the, the reader's questions, I mean, on uh, the terms that it was framed, the question is, if somebody gives you something of value that you can then go out and use, mm-hmm. can you go use it? And I think that the answer there is definitely yes. So but I guess carrying that you know, to your you know, extension, if somebody sends you a picture of a deformed child and you feel like you can sell that picture of a deformed child on the open market, that is also something that you're no, afraid to
2: do. No, that wasn't what I was getting at, counselor. <laughs> you said it was guilt tripping. You found the guilt-tripping unethical, or did I misunderstand you? No, that's right. Guilt-tripping is unethical?
1: Well, I think in this instance it is. I don't want to say that in every instance it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd have to think more about it. But here it just seems just, and I don't have a highfalutin answer to this other than that it feels extremely manipulative. So the idea would be that you receive this money or the picture of the deformed child, and that's supposed to invoke some feeling in you that you need to give to this charity. And maybe you're helping me suss out my intuitions here, because I do think that it is guilt guilt-tripping across the board might be problematic, but it's particularly problematic with the money issue. I mean, money has a social meaning, right? So if somebody gives you money, you feel like you owe them. I'm sure there's a lot of social psychology literature on this that says if you give somebody a small gift, they feel the need to reciprocate, and that's what they're trading on. And I think that that is unethical. So therefore, on the part of the person receiving it, there isn't uh, an obligation to respond to that form of manipulation.
2: Amy, could you trip on this? It seems to me that
0: guilt tripping is sort of the line of business for charities. This is one of the primary ways in which they raise money. As Jack would say, whether they're sending you the moving photo or the penny, I think the penny is probably pretty ineffective in the modern world, but I understand that they are sort of clinging to this technique in hopes that it will get you to deliver the response I wouldn't characterize the guilt tripping on the part of a charity as unethical, unpleasant and manipulative. And I think that whether you think it's ethical or not, our letter writers obligation is unchanged. It's like, I don't care exactly how we might classify the sending of the penny. You know, to me, it's stupid, ineffective, manipulative, and not nice. But No matter what you say about it, the person who receives the penny is not obligated to return it or give anything to the charity.
1: I also think that guilt is not the only currency in which charities can trade. There are many charities that say, here's a a person who was greatly helped by our charity, so let me tell you about a success story, and wouldn't you like to be part of this project of human flourishing? So it can be framed in much more affirmative terms. Whether or not you know market psychology says that's equally effective is a different question. But let me answer your question with another question, which is what I always say to my students, which means I don't know the answer, uh, Jack. So what would you do with the money?
2: My reaction to this is that I think we're all in agreement here. It's manipulative. It's skeezy. Where I break with you, uh, Kenji, is I don't think it's unethical. I think it's just they're in a business. And what I generally do with the money is take it and the next available panhandler I beat, I give it to them. The charity is appreciated and the the person I give it to puts it to immediate uh, valuable use. And I sort of wash my hands of the money. I won't be manipulated. I'm glad to pass the charity of the charity on to somebody who's in need of charity.
1: It's so funny because it really does go back to the social meaning of money because a Mm -hmm. glossy brochure I can easily just recycle. But if somebody sends me a quarter even, I'm not going to throw that quarter away on the principle that you don't throw money away.
2: Right. Would it be unethical for the charity to buy you a whiskey and say, here's a whiskey and and now we'll talk about uh, why you should...
1: uh, Oh, if only. only Now you're talking, Jack.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I think it's basically sort of, you know, three pennies up... We don't think that it would be at all unethical for the recipient to do what he thinks best with the money, that he has no obligation to the charity. And also, I think, basically, three pennies up for the solution of passing it on to whatever charity suits you best. So on to our next question, which has to do with parking and dilemmas and the public and the private good.
3: I'd love to know what you think of this. My husband and I have lived in Riverdale for eight years. We've always owned a car and have always parked on the street. There are not nearly enough parking spots for the number of people trying to park on the street, and it can take up to an hour sometimes to find a spot. We have children, too, and this makes the struggle for parking even more frustrating. After years of dealing with street parking, we recently decided to rent an outdoor parking spot two blocks away. This has made life notably easier for us. During a conversation with my husband, I joked, Now you know even if you see a spot right in front of our building, you can't park there. This led to a rather heated conversation in which he said, Of course I can park there. I have the right to park wherever I want. And I said, It's wrong to leave our own spot empty and cause someone else to have to search for parking. I then presented this to my extended family, and they all agreed with my husband. The points they made were we are paying for the option of using a rented spot, we have the right to the same convenience, and we have the right to the same convenience as anyone else. But I think this is wrong to knowingly cause someone else struggle because of laziness. My exception to this would be if I had a struggle, say a broken leg, and parking further away would cause me pain or struggle. Signed, Lauren.
0: I would love to have this lady for a neighbor regardless of whether or not we think she is right or wrong and her extended family is right or wrong, I would love to have her for a neighbor. What are your thoughts on this, Jack?
2: Well, free parking in the commons is um, a right that everybody has. Um, But just because you paid for a spot, that doesn't mean you've opted out of the basic right to park in a free parking spot Uh, any more than you have a right to breathe regular air if you've got an oxygen tank or a right to drink uh, water from a public fountain when you have Dasani at home in the fridge. So I think that the behavior here is completely defensible. What you purchased is a convenience. And like many conveniences that you consume, it's not unethical to partake of them or ignore them. And so I'm completely on the husband's side here. You want to take another shot at this, Amy?
0: I completely agree with the husband. I also like the idea of her extended family weighing in on the subject, including apparently like her mother and her siblings all saying, you know, your husband's right. Of course, she has the right to park in the more common spaces. It also seems to me it's true that unlike maybe the water and the air, there are a limited number of spaces. So she's mindful of the fact that when she takes one of those common spaces, given that she has an alternative, somebody else is going to be out of luck who may or may not have an alternative. I think that's nice. I think that's thoughtful. I think that's considerate. I'm not sure all of us would do that. I don't think that the extended family and husband's line is mistaken. She is paying for the option, and they do have the right. On the other hand, I think probably is a nice thing and a contribution to the greater good of that community that you have a neighbor who is mindful of the concerns of other people.
1: So it seems like one harmonious solution here would be that if the letter writer were driving the car alone, she could engage in the other regarding behavior that Amy describes and not use the spot right in front of the house. But if she has others on board with her who feel differently, that they uh, would... Trump, uh, given that all of us have agreed around the table that it would not be unethical to grab the common space in front of the house simply because you have the option
2: of the rented space. If she cares that much, maybe she should just get rid of the car. Or the husband. And the husband. A, a package deal. <laughs> Some used car dealers will take both the husband and a car off your hands. That's um, a trade-in. I... Okay. So
0: before we move on to our final question we get to look in the history books for a classical ethical dilemma, this one from you, Jack, in the area of journalism.
2: Here's the ethical quandary. You're a working journalist. A confidential source approaches you with information, gives the information to you, swears you to confidentiality, will not reveal under penalty of imprisonment or or beating the source of your information. You go with the information, you publish it, and then it turns out, that the confidential source was lying to you. They gamed you, they played you, and now you're in the position of having to decide how to clean up the mess you created. Do you out your source and explain that you were uh, bamboozled by them? Or do you suck it up and find another way to get out of your quandary? Um, So let's toss this to the counselor. Um, Let's toss this. I'm sure, to the I'm sure that I'm, sure, I'm <laughs> sure that I'm sure that it, there's some uh, contract law um, uh, <laughs> fulcrum here that that he can flex for us.
1: Right. Given that the last time I thought about contracts was when I took it as a first year law student in 1993, <laughs> but I'm doing some brush clearing here first. Right. So I think we all agree, and I'm sure it's really not an issue here that you have an obligation to reveal to the medium in which the information appeared that your information was incorrect so that's not the question the question is whether or not you can expose you know this goes to whether or not you feel like it was part of the original agreement or not and actually oftentimes this is governed i think by the custom of the industry itself right so I would really toss this back to you, Jack, which is to say, when you say to somebody, I'm going to keep your information confidential, right. is an implicit part of the contract saying, you know, dot, 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 if the information that you give me is true. And so you're speaking to me as a source confidentially, but the information that you have, you're giving me cannot knowingly be false, right? It's I the that knowing that seems exactly, to be crucial. Yeah, that, it, I, I it, agree that that's...
2: A it turns out that there's not actually um, a unified, agreed-upon custom here. Some journalists will say, hey, live by the confidential source, die by the confidential source. You made a vow. It doesn't matter that they gamed you. And one of the reasons that they say this is that let's say the source gives you 90% of the information that they gave you is dead on, but 10% is just concocted exaggeration. And so they... Only sort of half lied to you, or only ten percent lied to you. Uh, does that give you the ethical right to reveal them as your confidential source? I'm kind of a hardhead and absolutist on this. I think that while I don't work with a lot of confidential sources, and I'm and for exactly this reason, uh, I'm very suspicious of confidential sources. Um, I think that once once you step up to the bar and take that drink, the onus is on you, and that you're probably never going to get another confidential source if you decided based on your being the court and the judge and the jury, that you've convicted this guy and you're going to uh, reveal him as your confidential source.
0: So that's really a different consideration, although I think a very strong one for a journalist, right, which is that even if he knowingly lied, if you don't honor your side of the confidentiality, why would any other confidential informant ever come forward to you?
1: Well, this just seems like a repeat game in the sense that um this is gonna be iterative. Like so even if you suck it up once, the next time you have a confidential source, what's the problem with saying I will preserve your confidentiality so long as you don't knowingly
2: lie to me? No. Determining what was a lie is is a very, very difficult thing to untangle. The source that you think is lying may come back and say, Oh, I was just mistaken or oh I just misinterpreted something. And there, no confidential source is going to say, oh, you're going to go vet this information, and then if it turns out if, if any of this information is wrong, um, you're going to reveal me? No thanks. Nobody's going to take the deal that you're, you're offering.
0: I think you're absolutely right, Jack. I think that the obligation is, in that case, on the journalist. And seems to me that your solution to this is be ethical, uphold your obligation because it will serve you well professionally and personally and verify for God's
2: sakes. And another upshot of this is once your story is torn to shreds, other journalists are going to look for your confidential source. Uh, If you found the confidential source, Uh they might find him too. And he may not get off scot-free for having deliberately lied to you.
0: And it will be nice in one of those rare cases where virtue is rewarded.
1: I'm persuaded by this, but this also seems like a really strong argument, as you say, Jack, for not using confidential (laughs) sources.
0: Okay. So on with more forward-looking ethical behavior. This one is from a letter writer who is concerned about concealing or revealing his beliefs on the subject of the death penalty.
4: I am a former East Coast guy who moved to a Midwestern state four years ago. This state approves of state-sanctioned murder, or, as others know it, the death penalty. I am scheduled to be a juror for the first time in March. I am afraid that I will face a difficult ethical choice if I am selected for a capital case. Although I currently consider myself an atheist, I was brought up Quaker and still hold dear many of the values Quakerism instilled in me—nonviolence, a belief in the goodness of each person, peace, and simplicity, to name a few— In short, I believe that the death penalty is inherently wrong, unethical, and unjust in all cases. In the unlikely event that I am asked to sit for a capital punishment case, I am considering hiding my beliefs in order to improve my odds of selection as a juror in order to subvert an unfair system I find to be morally corrupt. I know it is unethical and possibly illegal to lie to the judge and lawyers, but do the means justify the ends in order to save a life? Signed, Nico.
1: So this is a great question, I think, and the letter writer is right, at least as I understand the law. Again, I should enter the caveat that simply because I'm a lawyer, I do not know all law. I don't want you're the
2: first lawyer I've ever heard say that.
1: <laughs> a criminal lawyers like swarming all over me when I get this wrong. But my understanding is that you can get challenged for cause for claims in either direction for saying that in all cases I would be opposed to the death penalty or. In all cases involving homicide, I would vote for the death penalty. So those kinds of categorical claims are seen to be disqualifying for jurors. And so this individual is right that this would likely be an act of civil disobedience. And the thing that makes this really tricky and interesting for me is that generally i don't want to take a categorical stand against civil disobedience. We have a really long tradition in this country, like a letter from a Birmingham jail that says an unjust law is no law at all, and we have to engage in civil disobedience. But one of the requirements of civil disobedience is that it be open and notorious, right? That you are willing to take your licks for disobeying the law. In this instance, that would be impossible. So that's what makes this such a great question, because if the person tried to be open and notorious about his civil disobedience saying, I'm going to engage in civil disobedience here, he wouldn't be allowed to engage in the disobedience because he would be struck from the jury.
0: Right. He would just be lying.
1: Exactly. So I, I think that's what makes it interesting. I think that the outcome here is not that hard for me as a matter of ethical intuition. Juries are there to make collective and composite judgments with sincerity and honesty, you know, as the law is. And If you believe that the law is wrong, and as many people do, that the death penalty is a violation of the Eighth Amendment or the death penalty is bad policy, then there are other ways of expressing that view other than engaging in dishonest or potentially illegal behavior.
0: Yeah, I think tell the truth and work for change would be the strongest ethical recommendation that I could make to this person. And I think it has to do with the categorical nature of it. If that's what you believe in all cases, and you know that there is no case in which you would ever do that, and this was those circumstances, it seems to me to make sense to say this is what I believe. I was also struck, I have to say, by the letter writers saying that although I am now an atheist, I still believe in these Quaker values, and there didn't seem to me to be any contradiction at all between being an atheist and those Quaker values, and it seems to me that part of it would be wanting to carry on the Quaker tradition of working for change. What about you, Jack? What were your thoughts?
2: Well, I consider a variation of this uh, question every time I'm called to jury duty and assigned to a drug case. And mm-hmm. living in Washington, D.C., uh, it's happened to me here twice and, and once out in Seattle. So when they're picking jurors, the judge asks if, um, if there's any reason a juror can't deliver um, an impartial verdict. And I raise my hand and I approach the bench and I tell the judge, I can't send somebody to jail for selling illegal drugs because I've taken illegal drugs. Well, Actually, I've taken one illegal drug, and it was outside the borders of the U.S., but that's another story. And that it's very likely the prosecutor or somebody on his team has taken an illegal drug at one time or another, or the police who arrested the individual. And then I say, you, Your Honor, you may have even taken illegal drugs. And it would be the height of hypocrisy for me to vote to convict. Um, and so if you put me on the jury, I will have to exercise the nullification role of the the juror to vote for acquittal, no matter what evidence is presented to me. And sometimes the judge and the prosecutor will look at me like you SOB, and sometimes they'll go, hey, it's just another day in court. We have uh, an unusual character. And they always strike me. They always dismiss me, and I'm thrown back into the jury pool where I'm you know, assigned some lesser uh, case. So in the case of the person who's opposed to capital punishment, I would be absolutely clear and say that you would vote for acquittal and you will be struck. You will not have blood on your hands this time. And if this is such an um, important issue to you, I agree with Amy and Kenji that you need to put your shoulder to the wheel of, of ad- advocacy and put your efforts there. Okay, well... We're in we, agreement again.
0: We are. Three thumbs up for Tell the Truth, and now, if you really care, work for the change.
2: Now, Kenji, if, if you are D- Judge Kenji, my question is, uh, do you think this is akin to a letter from a Birmingham <laughs> jail that you, you're prepared to accept whatever, I don't know, if, if judges can punish you with a contempt um First
1: of all, my answer to that is, <laughs> is nothing is like a letter from a Birmingham jail <laughs> other than a letter from a Birmingham jail. I'm so tired of people trying to justify sort of de minimis forms of civil disobedience. This is not hey. you, Jack. This is other hey. people. Everyone cites a letter from a Birmingham jail when they want to not obey the law. Right, this and is this, very, this, very this ain't that. <laughs> this ain't that. You uh, brought it up, pal. I did, I did. No, no, mea culpa. But to get to the real question that you were asking in such an open-hearted way before I made <laughs> fun of you, in my cruel and um, <laughs> and, and mean I, way. Uh, I'm
2: a delicate flower. So you are. You
1: are. And I keep forgetting that because you just come across as such a Hale fellow. But, um, right, I do think that there's a difference in that you are going to, you're doing the right thing, in my view. Like, you are being, quote, unquote, open and notorious about the way in which you exercise mm-hmm. your civil disobedience. And you're saying, like, if you want me on this jury, this is what I'm going to do. But I have to let you know that, you know, these are my priors. And what this individual is doing is very different from that.
0: Yes. In fact, what they're proposing doing is the opposite of that. Exactly. Right. Okay. And that's it for the ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicist at NewYorkTimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail for us to answer on the show, the number is 212 Five five six seven zero seven zero. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our theme music was written by the band Broke for Free. For Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom, and we'll talk to you next week on the Ethicists.